I use the illustration a lot of times, don't be a turkey, be an eagle. You know, if you look at turkeys, they're always in a flock, and they've always got their head down on the ground. They're always walking around pecking on the ground. <clears throat> Eagles tend to fly alone, and they look far off at the horizon. And if we get looking at immediate circumstances, it's very, very easy to get discouraged and downcast, and we need to keep our eyes on the horizon. We're going to talk about that some today as we get back into the book of Ruth. So if you will, open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We didn't even finish chapter 1. I'm going to have to start moving here this morning. Uh, hopefully we'll get through at least chapter 2 by the end of the day. And then we've got a couple of sessions in the morning and we'll try to get through uh, chapter 3 and 4. Really, chapter 3 and 4 are what tie the book together. We're going to see a whole lot of things start coming together. But they're a little, you know, it's almost like Hansel and Gretel throwing down the little breadcrumbs. Uh, all the way through the book of Ruth, there are just these very, very interesting little statements that are made. And I'll try to highlight those and bring them up as we get to them. Um, any announcements or anything we need to make, Jesse? Okay, not yet. <laughs> well, hopefully it'll stay that way. All right. Well, if you will, as you've opened your Bibles, let's bow our hearts and our heads and let's ask God's blessing on our time as we spend it together in His Word. Lord, what a wonderful privilege to spend a day in Your Word. Father, so often we get distracted by all the things that are going on in the world, and most of the time those distractions are discouraging. Uh, they have very little value for encouragement and motivation. But Father, when we come to your word, we see that even in dark and difficult times, your hand is working among your people. And we see that you lead them out of the darkness into the light, and you lift the heavy burdens and you resolve whatever issues may be afflicting them in their life, oftentimes as a result of their own decisions, as it often is with us. And yet, Father, you truly do work all things together for good to those who love you and to those who are called according to your purpose. So, Father, help us to be that kind of people. Help us to truly love you Help us to love your word. Help us to love your people. And Father, we know that in doing that, uh, we are actually exercising the greatest power available to us, which is the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us, Paul said. And so we pray that it will compel and motivate us in life. Open your word now to us. May God, the Holy Spirit, have complete control. <clears throat> Let nothing uh, of me intrude into the message. Just hide me behind the person and the work of Jesus Christ, I pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we've seen a very sad beginning to a very beautiful story. Uh, we've seen Elimelech and his wife and two sons leave Bethlehem. Uh, they left the land where God said, once I lead you in, you're to stay there. Uh, we saw the word rest last night. <clears throat> I mentioned that the word rest was what God used when he led the children of Israel 
into the promised land. He said, I will give you rest there. Uh, and they were told repeatedly through the Psalms too many times for me to be able to um, cover them as well as in Deuteronomy, stay in the land. God has brought you to the land. He has given you this land. Stay in the land and God will be faithful to you. And so the end result of Elimelech and his wife and his sons leaving is that Elimelech and his sons die. And this should be a warning to all of us who are men. You know, God holds us accountable as leaders, particularly in a marriage and particularly in a family. Uh, we have the privilege, if you will, of making decisions, but we also have the awesome responsibility of bearing the consequences of those decisions. And uh, when we make wrong decisions, we're the ones that are going to be held accountable. And so, of course, we end up with uh, three graves and three widows. And then Naomi decides to start the journey home. She encourages both the young women, Orpah and Ruth, to go back to their families. And Orpah ultimately returns to her families. And Naomi even says to her gods, one of whom was Chemosh. Uh, he was a god that demanded human sacrifice, particularly child sacrifice. So a very, very evil situation for her to go back to. I want you to notice that Orpah goes back to her people, to her gods, to the land of Moab and is never heard from again. There are many, many cases in Scripture of people who appear on the pages of Scripture and then they disappear. And in fact, as we're going to find when we get to chapter 4, there are people who appear on the pages of Scripture and they're never named. The Bible talks about having your name blotted out from among your people. And when someone comes onto the stage of Scripture and their name and then disappear, or even worse, if they're never named, that tells you something about that person. So we're going to see uh, the unnamed relative in chapter four, and we'll see why. But we want to pick up because today there are really two things that I hope we're able to uh, cover and emphasize today, and that is the power of faith. We talk a lot about faith. We use the term faith, just have faith. But what is faith? What is its nature? What is its character? How do we define it? There are people who are trying to redefine faith all the time. Jesus defined faith as that which is exercised by a little child. Except you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because little children, in their innocence and in their simplicity, they believe what we tell them. Uh, we now have people who have redefined faith as faith is your work. You have to work up faith. And so we have people trying to somehow generate from within themselves faith. Faith is a very simple thing. It is a response to a truth that is declared. God's word declares truth to us, and we believe it in that simplicity of a little child. So we want to talk about faith. We want to talk about the faithfulness of God, and we want to talk about the nature of grace. So uh, the two main things, faith and grace, they really both lead into the faithfulness of God, and we'll see that as we go along. So if you will join me now in, uh, I'll just read verse 
uh, 14, just to recap from yesterday. Then they, this is Orpah and Ruth, lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The word to cling here is the same word used in Genesis when it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It means to stick like glue. It means to cling to, to cleave to. And she is clinging to her mother-in-law. Verse 15, she said, look, this is Naomi speaking. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And Ruth begins to speak. I mentioned yesterday, numbers are important. She makes a seven-fold commitment. Now, this tells us several things. In her declaration, we find that she has come to faith in the God of Israel. She has claimed the God of Israel as her own. <coughs> and it's because of her faith in the God of Israel that she's making the decisions that she's going to make. Uh, we just had a conference last weekend in Alabama, and we talked about the transformed life. And you'll remember that in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul gives the exhortation that shifts the focus of the book of Romans from the doctrinal section to the practical section. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, and here's the key, the renewing of your mind the renewing of your mind, and faith renews the mind. And faith, of course, focuses on the promises of God. So Ruth makes her statement, and it's a sevenfold statement. Isn't that interesting? Why would she make a statement in seven declarations? Because she has obviously learned enough from Naomi to realize that seven is a very important number in relation to God and his works. Seven always speaks of perfect provision and perfect fulfillment. And so she says, entreat me not to leave you, nor to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May God do so. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts you and me. So notice here, declaration number one, wherever you go, I will go. In other words, I am staying with you. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. That's number two. <clears throat> Your people shall be my people. That's number three. And believe it or not, this is going to result in a tremendous blessing in her life because as a Moabite, according to Deuteronomy 23, the Moabites were not to participate in the spiritual life of the nation. They were banned from joining the festivities. They were banned from the feast and other things. And yet where the law excludes us from God, remember what Paul tells us in Galatians, the law can only condemn she stands condemned as a Gentile and even more so as a Moabite under the law where the law excludes 
grace includes. And she has now come into grace because of her faith, and God is going to do marvelous things in her life. Your people shall be my people. Number four, your God, my God. She claims Jehovah or Yahweh, as you prefer, to be her God. Where you die, I will die. In other words, I'm with you for life. I'm going to remain with you to the end of your days. That's the fifth. There I will be buried. Number six. And finally, may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now, many times these words of Ruth have been used in a wedding. Uh, they're a wonderful uh, declaration of commitment and devotion and dedication, and rightly so, they're used in that sense. Uh, but here, it reveals something to us of what she has learned from Naomi. She has learned about the true God. She has learned about the people of Israel. She understands that the number seven is important. By the way, there's a whole list of people who have made sevenfold statements in Scripture. I didn't think it would be worth it, uh, the time to go through it, but uh, it's a formula that is used all the way through the Old Testament. You find it again and again and again. And uh, we, we won't try to go into all those or we're never going to get done with the book of Ruth. But here is her commitment. And verse 18 says, when she saw, that is Naomi, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. And the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. Did anybody count how many times Bethlehem is used in the book of Ruth? How many? Seven. Seven. Just by accident. How many times is it used in chapter one? Five. Got it. Isn't it interesting that in the introductory chapter, we're bombarded with the word Bethlehem. By the way, there are a whole lot of connections to Bethlehem. Uh, outside of Bethlehem was a tower that is mentioned in Genesis uh, called the Tower of Eder. The Tower of Eder was set up in the time of Genesis in anticipation of the place where Messiah would be born. It's called in one of the minor plot prophets, the Tower of the Flock or the Tower of the Sheepfold. Well, we know that outside Bethlehem were what are called the sheep fields. They're still there to this day. They still shepherd their flocks outside of Bethlehem in those places. We also know that Bethlehem is connected to a guy named Jabez. You ever hear of a guy named Jabez? First Chronicles chapter four. Jabez is in the lineage of Judah. Jabez is a relative of Boaz. He comes along uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, and you'll remember he was the guy who prayed the prayer of Jabez. Unfortunately, a book got written about that that really missed the most important things in the whole prayer and its impact because I can show you by tracing the prayer of Jabez that Jabez established a village. The village became a center for Bible study, and it was also the center where the shepherds lived just outside Bethlehem, and those shepherds were of the house of Rechab. And if you go to Jeremiah 35, you'll remember that the Rechabites 
are brought to Jeremiah and they display their faithfulness and their loyalty to the vow that their father took that they would remain shepherds and dwell in tents. And we come all the way down in Jeremiah 35, God makes a promise. The house of Rechab will not lack a man to stand before me forever. And guess what happens when the Son of God comes into the world and is born in Bethlehem who comes to see him? It's the shepherds who are the descendants of the Rechabites. Beautiful, beautiful story. But all that connects, of course, to our friend who we're about to meet uh, in chapter 2. So they come to Bethlehem and it happened, it happened, I want you to hang on to that little phrase, when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means what? Pleasant. Pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. You might remember we left off toward the end of last night with the warning in Hebrews 12 and verse 15, do not allow a root of bitterness to spring up and cause you trouble and by it many be defiled. We live in a world today that is full of bitter people. There are bitter, bitter people everywhere you see them. Uh, they display it all the time. Their anger, their frustration, uh, they're wanting to blame someone else for the fact that their life is miserable and they're proving what Hebrews 12 warns us about. When you allow bitterness to take root in your soul, it's going to trouble you, but it's going to defile many other people. Don't get bitter. Life can hurt. Life can be difficult. Life can be painful. Every pain that God allows in the life of a child of God is intended for good. Every pain. Nothing happens to you and I as a child of God apart from divine permission. Nothing can touch us that is not a part of the plan of God. And if we go through life realizing that, then when things go wrong, when things hurt, when life is difficult, we can say the Father has permitted this for a good purpose. And we'll be able to go through that in faith and come out the victor on the other side. And that's what we always want. So she says, do not call me Naomi, call me bitter. Notice this, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Isn't it interesting that when we suffer the consequences of decisions we make, we can always blame God. She uses the name Almighty. It's the name El Shaddai. I think it's used approximately 40 times in the Old Testament, 30 some times uh, of those are found in the book of Job. Job speaks a lot about the Almighty, and of course Job was suffering, wasn't he? But the word Almighty speaks of the all-sufficient one. It's a word that has the connotation of strength and power, but it's strength and power for the purpose of, and you might want to take note of these, protection and provision. The Almighty, the protector and provider, has dealt very bitterly with me. In other words, what she's saying, God has acted out of character. God has done something contrary to his nature. The Almighty has treated me bitterly. 
I want to just very quickly, if you're taking notes, I want you to look at your hand. I think all of us have a hand. If you hold your hand up, you'll notice that we all have how many fingers? Well, actually, I have four fingers and a thumb, but that's all right. Five fingers, right? Did you ever stop and think that both hands have five fingers, both feet have, now I've met people that have six, they're strange, but it's not the norm. Do you think God may be trying to get something across to us? I've mentioned that numbers are important in scripture. The number five is the number of grace. You see it over and over and over again. But I want you to take your five fingers, you might even want to just write on your hand, because there are five things that are going to determine the direction of your life. And they all relate to faith. They all relate to the faithfulness of God. Number one is attitude. Your attitude is either going to be that of being humble or that of being arrogant. They're the only two attitudes that the Bible deals with. You know, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Why? Because, listen closely, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. The word resist is a word that means to wage war against. God gives grace to the humble, but he wages war against the proud. Make sure that your attitude is humble. Your attitude is going to determine your priorities. Your priorities are going to fall into one of two categories. You know, the Bible makes things black and white. It's very, very clear. Our priorities are either going to be, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, spiritual or carnal. Spiritual is Bible-focused, Christ-focused. Carnal is self-centered. If I have a humble attitude, I have laid the foundation for spiritual priorities. If I have an arrogant attitude, I have laid the foundation for self-centered priorities. So our attitude will determine our priorities, which is going to be the deciding factor in the decisions that we make. We go from attitude to priorities to decisions. I often hear people say, why in the world did I make the decision I make? And if I sit down with them and work with them back through their life, I can explain to them and demonstrate to them, by the time you got to the point of the decision, you had so set the foundations and the uh, parameters of your life that that was the one that seemed most logical to you. You know what? The Bible breaks our decisions down into two, wise and foolish. The whole book of Proverbs is the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. We see wisdom and uh, foolishness or folly coming out over and over and over again. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5, I think it's in verse 14, that we need to not be unwise but wise. Ephesians 5, 14 and 15. Don't be unwise. In other words, don't be foolish be wise. Now, if I have a humble attitude and I establish spiritual priorities, which means I'm in the word, I'm learning God's word, I'm drawing near to him, I'm conscious of him in my life. When it comes time to make decisions, I'm going to make wise decisions because my mind is being informed 
by the things that I've been taking in. I have programmed myself, using computer analogy, I've programmed myself to make wise decisions. So we've got attitude, priorities, decisions. Decisions lead to actions. We all have actions. And guess what? The Bible breaks our actions down into two kinds, right and wrong. Right and wrong. We too often think we can go through life just with a very superficial attitude and, you know, we're free, we can do whatever we want. But the decisions that produce our actions that are either right or wrong produce the fifth thing, and this is the key, results. Results. Most people live their life until it hurts, until it stinks, until it tastes bad, until they're angry, they're mad, they just are at the end of their rope and what they're feeding on is the meal that they prepared. They prepared themselves a meal and it tastes bad because all the ingredients were wrong. They went through life with a bad attitude, established wrong priorities, made bad decisions, producing wrong actions. Now they're reaping what they've sown. Do you remember what we're told in Galatians? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. The word mock means to pull the wool over his eyes. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. You know, we hear people joke about sowing wild oats and then praying for a crop failure. It doesn't work with God. It doesn't work. We will in life reap what we sow. He who sows to the flesh, Paul says, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap life everlasting. Now, that doesn't mean that we have eternal life based on what we do. Uh, whenever that formula is used, it's saying that when we sow to the Spirit, it is laying up for us treasure in eternity. We are reaping everlasting life to a greater and greater degree. So, in the story of Naomi and Ruth, Naomi blames God, and the fact is that the blame goes to the decision they made to defy a repeated command of God over and over in Scripture. Every time Israel is outside the land, their blessings are removed. Israel spent 2,000 years outside the land and studied the history of the Jewish race during those 2,000 years, and it is a sad, sad story. It's a 2,000-year magnification of what we see at the beginning of the book of Ruth. Death, disaster, and destruction everywhere they have turned. Verse 22, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. Fifth time it's mentioned in the first chapter, at the beginning of barley harvest. Here is the first word of hope. They returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Barley harvest came first, usually in March, early April, and then the wheat harvest would come Later, they returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, 
We move right into chapter two. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, her husband. This is going to become very important. And his name was Boaz. Boaz means in him is strength. In him is strength. You could translate it inherent strength, but I like in him is strength. Verse 2, so Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find what? Favor, grace. We're going to see that word again in a moment. She said to her daughter, go, my daughter. You can tell that there is a real love relationship between Naomi and Ruth, and Ruth is now taking the position of a humble servant as a uh, a faithful daughter. She is going to go and glean in the field. It's hard work. It's hot. You know, when I lived here in Kansas, I made money in the summers hauling hay. I knew what it was like to get in the hay field the minute the sun came up and oftentimes stay until after the sun was down. It's hot. It's dirty. It's dusty. Well, gleaning would be very much the same. They're following behind the reapers. They are bending over and picking up little bitty heads of grain that have fallen behind the reapers. And of course, this was a provision that was made in the law for the poor and the strangers to be able to have food to eat. So Naomi says, go, my daughter. And in verse three, she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And here's that phrase again. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Whenever you see in Scripture, and you find it particularly in the Old Testament, the phrase, and it happened, or it so happened, you should realize that that is a key. It is a reminder of the providence of God. Nothing just so happens. Things happen for a reason. And when we have good things happening to people who are making wise decisions, we know that we're on the ground of the providence of God. And when we think of the providence of God, we're thinking of his faithfulness. So for those of you that are jotting down notes, I want to give you a few little pointers on the faithfulness of God. This is so important because everything we study, everything we teach, everything we believe, everything we do in life ultimately is going to relate to the faithfulness of God. So here are a few things for you to jot down and think about. Number one, God is faithful to forgive our sins. That's where it all begins. God is faithful to forgive our sins. Now, these sins are forgiven the moment that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for the sins of the human race. But once we have trusted Christ, it's important for us to remember what John tells us in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let me ask you a question. How long has it been since you honestly sat before the throne of God and asked him to turn on the searchlight of his truth and search your heart and bring to your mind things that you've done wrong? I would suggest if you haven't done it in a while, you ought to do it. 
I would suggest that you do it every day because I promise you, if you sit down in a humble attitude and you ask God to turn on the searchlight of truth in your soul, you will start having things come to your mind that you better be confessing. Failure to confess our sins on a daily basis is one of the biggest causes of failure in the Christian life. We do not examine ourselves, which explain, which tells us basically we're not serious about our spiritual life. We cannot go week by week and month by month ignoring God's faithfulness to forgive our sins. Secondly, God is faithful to keep us safe. You know, we live in a world that the church teaches if you do wrong, if you do this, if you do that, you lose your salvation. If you can lose it, you never had it. If you can lose eternal life, you never had it. Eternal means eternal. We are not kept by our works. We are not kept by our efforts. We are not kept by our uh, desire or attempts to appease God. We are kept. How does Peter tell us? You have been saved to an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and fades not away, reserved in you who are kept through your own efforts. Is that what it says? An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. The minute you begin depending on yourself to keep yourself safe, you are going to go in a tailspin in your spiritual life. And I promise you, you're going to end up frustrated, discouraged, and bitter. We trust in the power of God. God is faithful to keep us saved. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He has made an oath with himself that he will save those who trust in Jesus Christ. And he cannot deny himself. Third, God is faithful to deliver us through temptations. All of us have tests, trials, difficulties, temptations, and God is always faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape. Every test, every trial, every affliction, every sorrow, God will demonstrate his faithfulness if we will simply rely on him. How about this one? Number four, God is faithful to keep his promises to us. God keeps his promises. We read in Hebrews 10 and verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. I want you to imagine yourself just for a moment being in a difficult place in your life like Naomi. Uh, death has visited a loved one, your bereft, you're lonely, you're alone, and you lash out in bitterness and you blame God. And then at the end of it all, as you stand before him, you find that he was with you the whole time. He was always there. He was always available, but we never counted on him, never called on him, never turned to him, Never trusted him. Like the prodigal son, we could sit in the pig pen watching the hogs feed at the slop, starving to death, and we could say, God is not faithful. He never helped me. 
or we can do like the prodigal did and wake up and go back to the Father. I see so many believers with bitter lives, angry lives, empty lives, and they're pointing a finger at God. Sometimes they wouldn't say it outright, but by the way that they express how life has treated them, it's all God's fault. No, it's that we refuse to rely on His faithfulness. What God is about to do here, He's not doing because of Naomi. What He's about to do, He's doing because of Ruth. Because of someone who finally woke up and started trusting Him and started acting on trust in the promises that she had, however few they may have been. God is faithful to us in our times of difficulty and affliction. He is faithful to keep His promises to us. Hebrews 10, 23. And I'm going to end with this one. God will be faithful in fulfilling His plan for us. God has a plan for your life. Did you know that? I was told that as a 15-year-old kid down in Butler County by the man that led me to Christ, Pastor Sammy Hartzler, and he led me to faith in Christ, and he told me that day, God has a plan for your life. You know what I decided that day? I want to find out what that plan is. I want his plan, not my plan. And I have to tell you, it has been an absolutely marvelous and amazing discovery. Not without tests, trials, sorrows, and difficulties. That's part of life. But what an amazing plan. God has a plan for your life, and he will fulfill it if you'll be following, willing to follow him. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, faithful is he who calls you, he will also bring it to pass. Faithful is he who calls you. Can you see the link of that with Romans 8, 28, where we see that God is working all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Whenever you see the word call or called in scripture, it always means someone is standing there giving you an invitation. This is the doctrine of election in a nutshell. The doctrine of election in a nutshell is God calls, some answer, some don't. We have the freedom to respond. We have the freedom to reject. By the way, election always relates to Jesus Christ because he is the elect one. According to the law of first mention in Scripture, a word is determined by its use, the first appearance in Scripture, the first appearance of the word elect in Scripture is Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant in whom I delight, my elect one in whom is all my pleasure. It's all about Jesus Christ. When you start making election about you, you're completely off target. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? That determines where you stand with the elect one. Very important to understand that. And what does God do? He stands and calls. Behold, I stand. Behold, I call. Who will hear? Who will listen? Who will respond? Some do, some don't. The book of Proverbs tells us that wisdom stands at the gates of the city and cries out, All you foolish ones, come to me. How many will respond? You know, here we are gathered together around the word and we've got a 
uh, town of people all around us, and I would be willing to guarantee you that 80 to 90 percent of all the people in this town know that something's wrong with this country, and they know that it's on its way to disaster and destruction, and they would love to see it turned around, and there's only one thing that'll ever turn it around, that is when the people in the town, the people in this country start waking up and realizing it all boils down to one thing, where we stand with Jesus Christ. It's not who's president. We can't vote our way out of it. The corruption is too deep. But there is a savior who stands with his arms stretched out open wide to the United States of America. And we're too busy. We've got a ball game. Uh, we have a program. We have uh, work. We have this, that. We can think of 10 million reasons. And you know what? We're going to lose all the reasons. We're getting closer every day. When all the reasons are gone, guess what's going to happen? People are going to start crying out to God. It's the way human nature works. She happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. I want you to notice verse 4. Verse 4 is written in such a way that it's to be dramatic. If this were a play, this would be a dramatic entrance. Notice the words, now, behold. The word behold is always a word designed to arrest our attention. Here is the hero of the play. Here is the hero of the story. He is making his grand entrance. And I want you to notice that it says, now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. There's only two times the word Bethlehem is used after chapter one, and this is one of them. And again, it's very important. Bethlehem is what? The house of bread. The house of bread. What did Jesus say? I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. So from the house of bread comes him, him in whom is strength. It's a beautiful portrayal of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz comes to Bethlehem. And he says to the reapers, what's the first thing your boss says to you every day? You're late. You're not doing your job. I'm not pleased with your performance. The very first thing out of his mouth is the desire God has for each and every one of us. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you with you. Wouldn't you love to have a boss like that whose first concern was for your spiritual well-being? He says, the Lord be with you. You can tell a lot about his workers because they answer him, the Lord bless you. I don't know when the last time you said that to your boss is. May the Lord bless you. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his servant who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Two things I want you to notice. The servant is unnamed. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples, when the Holy Spirit arrives, he will reveal all things to you. Very important phrase, he will not speak of himself. Have you ever noticed how the Holy Spirit always hides himself? He always puts himself in the background. Here we have a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the unnamed servant. And isn't it interesting? He's the Lord of the harvest. 
He's the guy in charge of the reapers. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew 9 when he looked on the people and he said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He was referring to the Holy Spirit. And this is a parallel with another incident in Scripture. You'll remember the story when Abraham and Isaac went up on the mountain and Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And of course, the ram was provided as a picture of substitutionary sacrifice. And Isaac was raised up from the altar. Hebrews 11 tells us that it was a type of resurrection. Abraham believed that God was able to raise him even from the dead, by which he did receive him in a type. So Isaac is resurrected. But have you ever noticed that when they come back down the mountain, Abraham's alone? You ever notice that? Isaac's not with him. Isaac disappears from the story. You never see Isaac again until Genesis 24. And in Genesis 24, you'll remember the story is that Abraham sends his unnamed servant, even though we assume that it's Eliezer, who we met earlier. And what does Eliezer mean? Meaning of the name? Comfort. A picture of the comforter. In the story of the servant going to get Rebecca, the servant is unnamed. The unnamed servant goes to find a bride for the son. And then who appears back into the story? Isaac comes out into the field to meditate in the cool of the evening. It's a beautiful picture of Christ resurrected and then the bride being uh, found and, and brought back. And then the bride and the groom meet together. Beautiful picture of the rapture. So the unnamed servant here is the one who introduces Ruth to Boaz. The servant in charge of the reaper said, it is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. I want you to notice Ruth's uh, just her character comes through in her request. She asked Naomi, please let me go get, let me go work in the hot field, sweat all day, picking up little heads of grain off the ground. Please allow me to do this. She comes to the servant in charge of the workers. Please let me glean and gather. She considers it a privilege. You know what? When we're living by faith, everything in life's a privilege. Every day is a privilege. Every day is a wonderful day. It may be hard, it may be difficult, it may be filled with tears, sure. But we realize something. There's a God who's in control and he is working things behind the scenes that we do not know. And if we believe the promise of God, he is working this for good. What a wonderful way to look at life. So Boaz speaks in verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter. My daughter is a term of endearment. Uh, it's a way that you could show uh, attention and concern and compassion in a polite way as an older man to a younger woman. Listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, no go from here, but stay close to my young women. I want you to notice the very first thing that Boaz gives her is protection. 
gentlemen, little application, we are here to be protectors. We are here to put a shield of protection around our wives, around our children, around our families, and around others in our presence. We read stories all the time of people being attacked and beaten to death, and they're surrounded by men who stand by and watch. And the real tragedy now is everybody will get out their phone and they'll video it and stand by and watch. We are not designed by God to stand by and watch evil take place. We are here to be protectors. We need to keep that in mind. He says, let your eyes be on the field which they reap, go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? Once again, you're safe with my young men. They're not going to harm you. They're not going to touch you in any way. When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Now, he has shown tremendous kindness as, and you know what, I think I skipped something back there in verse 1 that I should have emphasized. A man of great wealth. The Hebrew literally means a hero of great valor. Remember, they're living in the time of the judges. Remember, in the time of the judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was violence everywhere. And here is a guy who is living in Bethlehem where Elimelech left. As a matter of fact, we now learn he is a relative of Elimelech. Elimelech left. He stayed. And in the time Elimelech is gone, what has happened? He has become not only a valiant warrior, he has become a mighty man of wealth. He has land, he has property, he has servants, he is prospering. Because what does the scripture say? Well, in the land and cultivate faithfulness and God will give you the desires of your heart. So he's comforting this young woman. Verse 10. So she fell on her face and she bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? You notice that we see that same word once again, favor. In verse two, she asked Naomi, let me go and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. The word favor is grace. It's the word grace. I mentioned earlier the law of first mention. It's one of the laws of hermeneutics, the laws, the science of biblical interpretation. And it reminds us that when a word appears first in the scripture, it's not an accident. You know, Jesus said every word, not only every word, but every jot and every tittle. That means what we would call a period. And we don't even have anything to compare us to the tittle. We could say the crossing of the T. Every one of those is important. And Jesus said every one of them is inspired and is going to be fulfilled. So we can rely on the promises of the word of God and we can rely on what it says. And when we see the word grace, the word favor that she uses here, and we ask ourselves, where does grace first appear in the Bible? Anybody know? First time it shows up in the Bible? It's translated favor in a lot of our translations. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. The very first time grace appears 
It's in relation to God delivering a man and his family from judgment. Grace delivers from judgment. That's the idea that we want to get. Why have I found favor in your eyes? And we'll look at grace. Uh, We're running out of time, but we'll look at it in our next session. Why should you take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father, your mother, the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. And I'm going to quit with verse 12, but I want you, I hope it has an impact in your mind and your soul. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Look back over your life for the last six months and ask yourself a question. If God pays me according to my work, what am I going to get? May the Lord repay you according to your work. You know, Paul tells us in Romans at the very introduction of that great theological epistle that he wrote that God repays us according to our deeds. Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, he renders to each man according to his deeds. Again, we will reap what we have sown. Now, is it possible to soften or minimize that reaping? Absolutely. How do we do it? confess our sins and stand honestly and humbly before the Lord. And it's amazing how he can take even bad consequences from wrong decisions and he can soften the blow and he can be so very gracious. God is faithful. He is no respecter of persons. He looks down on this earth. He judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart and the actions of men. And he renders to each one according to what we do. Again, not just the work of our hands, but the thoughts of our mind. How can we, I mean, wouldn't we in all honesty look back and say, "Uh uh-oh, I wonder what's coming? Once again, look at Ruth. Is it not phenomenal that the minute she humbles herself and comes under the protection of God, everything starts working out right? That's all we have to do. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will bless you in due time. Let's pray, take a break, and we'll come back for the next session. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. It's so full, so rich, so powerful, and it can have such great effect in our lives if only we humble ourselves to receive it and apply it on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we have the ability by faith to lay hold of that faithfulness and to reap the riches of what you have done, not what we have done. We thank you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.